This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. And the starkest on-the-field assault I can remember this year was in the AFL when Andrew Gaff from West Coast punched Frio's Andrew Brayshaw so hard it broke his jaw. And there was a debate at the time whether the police should get involved, but ultimately it stayed in-house and the AFL tribunal gave Gaff eight weeks and he'll be back on the field next year. And it's this issue and others that have prompted a really interesting-sounding forum coming up this week called The Law and You Forum is Sport Playing by the Rules. It's going to question whether the gulf is too great between what's acceptable on field versus off when it comes to assault, discrimination, bullying and harassment charges. One of the participants in the forum is Dr Bridie O'Donnell. She's the inaugural head of the Office for Women in Sport and Recreation in Victoria. She's a medical doctor and has competed at elite levels in rowing, triathlons and road cycling and it's really great to have you on Triple R. Welcome. Good morning, how are you? Yeah, well, and I wonder if you can sort of, um, we can begin this conversation about how sporting codes came to have their own codes of behaviour. How did that evolve? I suspect that um, for a lot of sporting organisations, a big part of the way they presented sport to the community was as an outlet from their daily lives. And, you know, historically we've seen for a lot of professional sports, they started as a way for people who were not employed to be engaged in community activities and for people with physical talents and abilities and for those, um, you know, uniting after work or on weekends, etc. So for a lot of people it probably formed um, a representation of something that was separate separate from our daily lives or separate from our lives that were governed by other types of rules. And also I think because um, the better a sport becomes in terms of its interest and ability, the more spectators and fans, people who are passionately following it. And so then sport becomes entertainment and what we've seen now over an evolution of um, competitive sport in Australia over, say, 150 or so years is that the level of expectation now is greater. People want more entertainment. They even um, are very happy to complain on social media when things are boring or dull or not enough of this or not enough crashes in motor racing or not enough crashes in cycling. So that, I think, is a real challenge, is that what are we delivering to our spectators and fans, but more importantly, what are young people you know, who are engaging in community sports seeing as their role models? And that's where it becomes quite dangerous. Yeah, and I, I suppose... People playing sports, particularly at that elite level, and you've been an elite athlete, agree to different standards. It's a consent thing. Um, I, I know I heard athletes and AFL footballers say in that incident I, I, I spoke about the um, with the Freo guy getting his jaw broken is that, well, we're playing at extremes on the, on the, the sporting field and it's totally different to everyday life, so therefore it's treated as such. And that may be, um, but then what we're starting to understand is that not everybody has that same expectation or uh, willing to accept that high degree of risk. Um, For example, one could argue um, if I was an AFLW player, I might expect that I'm going to get tackled or I might get blindsided by someone as I leap in the air for a mark, but I don't expect to be punched in the head actively by an opponent. Um, And in the same way in cycling that one might crash their bike, but you shouldn't expect for someone to push you off your bike into the side of the road, into a trench, and you have an injury or an accident. And yet, for so many people, I think they could argue or justify, well, that came from something else, from provocation. And so 
one of the things that we've spoken about with um, the panel that we're going to talk about on Wednesday night are highly qualified Russell Hoy, Kate CR and Rob Starry um, who work in the law and work in sports administration is that whether or not sport is actually failing to regulate itself um, and you mentioned earlier around the differences between uh, the impact on the victim of that punch um, between West Coast and Frio that if that had happened at a pub on a Saturday night, not only might the victim feel the need to press charges, but the police can intervene and say it's in the interests of the public good to press charges on the person who perpetrated that violent assault. And that's not happening in professional sport very often at all. No, and it does, I mean, it has happened, but I, I wonder, is it the way that the, the laws are at the moment, it's up to the code to call on the police, they don't necessarily immediately get involved, or, or can they? Um, they certainly can, and another example, again, to um, quote some extensive work done by Associate Professor Kate Sear around um, the management or treatment, if you like, of Ben Cousins as a player is that for a man who um, actually was never charged with criminal act in his lead-up to being um, suspended from the game, it was almost as though finally uh, those in the AFL felt that Ben Cousins was bringing the game into disrepute or was bad for the brand. Um, and yet we know that violence frequently in um, professional male sport is often good for the brand. And I don't mean good for community, um, but certainly we know commentators get excited by fights um, on the field in NRL and rugby um, rugby union and in AFL. And um, yet we all also then hold a very different standard for our professional female athletes and people's um, concern, I think, for the safety and well-being of female players is rightfully there you know one should be concerned about the well-being of all athletes but it's as though we have a different standard like we're okay to accept a man being punched to the head in an AFL game but if we saw a woman being punched that's suddenly terrible um, and yet really uh, what we need to show more care for is athletes generally and think about their the longitudinal impact that that has on them I mean injury and illness and overtraining in non-contact sports are hard enough, let alone for those who are suffering concussions and significant injury in, in the impact and invasion sports that are really popular in Australia. Yeah, and I was, I mean, it leads to a question I've had in my mind is if we start to set um, higher codes of behaviour or we start to say, okay, uh, sporting codes, we as a society are going to start to intervene here, um, do we then see workplace injury claims and things like this start to open up if, if um, players in sport yeah, start to get injured or uh, th those kinds of head injuries that you just mentioned? Uh, we certainly could and I think um, what might come earlier than that though is psychological abuse and um, bullying and racial vilification and homophobia and these are things that are happening on a daily basis in community sport and we're certainly seeing really unhealthy behaviours from some, I would say the minority of coaches in community sport uh, abusing players, screaming at kids, you know, both young men and women um, players are, are having sometimes coaches or even parents that are far too emotionally invested in the outcome of a game when we know that young people really actually play sport for fun and they want fun and they want to be around their friends and their social group. So um, that's a huge issue around language, behaviour and culture within sporting communities. Absolutely sexism, homophobia, racism, transphobia, those issues are huge as well and we've, we've had a culture I think historically, um, again in professional male sport, of heckling, trash talking, um, you know, a player gets to insult another player's wife, daughter, mother and then that other player is then provoked or uh, allowed to behave badly and we saw that play out in full view 
with the ball tampering um, in the in Yeah, the, the sledging in cricket is, is, is well known. And do you think because the community response to that was really bad for the game of cricket that the sport itself might do something or, or do you think that we should start to intervene there? What I'm seeing certainly um, in my role now, I've nearly been in this job for 12 months, is that actually community expectations is that we want our workplaces, which includes sport and recreation, to reflect broader community, that we want people to be um, able to feel safe and welcome. We want to have a diverse representation of people in leadership roles in sport, for example, and we want to tolerate... um, Sorry, we don't want to tolerate bad behaviour and we want to encourage people to be able to feel good when they're playing sports. So I think uh, another really amazing example of this was the booing of Adam Goods, which still fills me with shame as a country, that a man who was our Australian of the Year and an amazing um, representative of the Indigenous community and an extraordinary athlete left the game on, on such terrible circumstances and that sure it's difficult to control a mob of people who are, once once people are starting to boo, you can't sort of uh, arrest everybody and you can't prevent them all from making noise but there was probably a lack of leadership earlier on to say actually we don't tolerate this and we encourage uh, an Indigenous player to celebrate a goal in a completely non-violent way on the field which was a, a beautiful uh, tribute really to his people so um, I think that people are now having an expectation that their children and their colleagues are actually going to return home safely from work and if that work means that they're a professional footballer basketballer cricketer etc um, that we're starting to have a higher expectation now and we're also starting to hear the voices of players who've retired who said um, that actually was damaging for me or my body is permanently damaged um, we're not willing to just accept those rough hits and then never hear those voices ever again. Dr. Dr. Bridie O'Donnell is who you're hearing from, head of the Office for Women in Sport and Recreation, speaking with her ahead of a Victorian Law Foundation forum called the Law and You Forum is Sport Playing by the Rules and this idea that that sport has its own code which may or may not align with the the code of behaviour applied to the rest of the community. And, I mean, do you think it would radically change sport if we started to align what was allowed on football field or other sports I mean I'm even thinking the sort of cage fighting and so forth that is very popular these days with what's uh, permissible on on the street Bridie? I do, and and certainly we would hear some loud voices in opposition to regulating sport um, more broadly. Um, Fighting and combat sports is a really good example. Um, When we look at the regulated side of combat sports, and for example, I've got colleagues here at Sport and Rec Victoria who are part of the the group that uh, support the regulation of of combat sports, and they describe for me the process by which a fighter um, is is, um, ranked, if you like. And that it's not just about physical strength and skill, it's also how many fights has that person, that man or woman won, how many, what's their knockout history, so that they can be appropriately matched to make for, as much as possible, a fair contest. And then, of course, what we see as that grey area extends to things like UFC is um, probably organised chaos, if you like. There is a there is a marshal in the ring, or a, an umpire, I should say, and monitoring the behaviour of those. And yet what, what we all witnessed a couple of weeks ago in a very high-profile UFC fight between uh, McGregor and Khabib was post-event, post-victory, um, a very 
fired up fighter who, who had been receiving racial uh, vilification from his opponent and abuse from McGregor in the past, feeling angry and provoked enough that he leapt over the side of the cage to assault one of the team members, you know, support staff. Now, one could argue that for the UFC that was brilliant, you know. There were millions of eyeballs on that. Yeah, people even told me about it and they know I don't even follow the sport. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? So suddenly this is generating uh, income, sponsorship, all the things that sport is crying out for. So we know that sport um, thrives on controversy, it thrives on drama, it thrives on personalities and even, in fact, athletes saying things that are sometimes provocative or a bit stupid. So we do need to allow for humanity in sport. We don't want all of our athletes to be robots and for everything to be controlled. But we also need to have extend a little empathy, and I think um, your example right at the outset around Gaff and the punch is, who is the victim in this situation? What is his mental and physical health like? How does he now have to live? He had a fractured jaw, a concussion, and some broken teeth, I understand. Um, how does he feel going back out onto the field at the start of next season? Um, he wouldn't have felt any power to sort of make an official complaint because maybe his team would have said, mate, mate, don't worry about it. So um, we need to be careful to look after the athletes that often don't have as much power and autonomy as we imagine that they do. And so do you have a a sort of a a fixed view on this, Bridie, or or do you think it's an area that um, your your thinking's evolving as well? I know that um, having experienced um, accidental violence in bike races, you know, it happens, crashing happens all the time, um, that... Frequently, people put that down to um, just the nature of that's the risk, the risk you're putting yourself into. Um, That being said, I also, as a professional road cyclist, was um, subject to abuse off the racetrack, so, you know, within a working environment as a team member living in a team house in Italy. Um, And I think that for a lot of people, it depends so much on context and what they are willing to tolerate to get to where they are. And we've certainly seen some very high-profile complaints made about the Training Centre for Gymnastics Australia in the last couple of weeks, which are not new complaints, and an investigation was performed um, to determine whether or not young athletes were being abused. I feel like um, these things can change and ebb and flow once we start to determine why a sport allows bad behaviour or why a sport encourages it. And certainly I want to see in my role, and both personally and professionally, more girls and women participating, more girls and women competing, and more girls and women leading in sport. And sometimes hearing more diverse voices and allowing women who are coming in with a different view to perhaps the historical masculine way of sport being delivered to people is going to be a really positive thing because women are no less competitive and ambitious and assertive and even aggressive but they generally want to be engaged in less meaningless violence they want to win games but they're not interested in wasting time and energy or getting penalized uh, for unnecessary violence or abuse so i think that um, the professionalization of women's sport is actually going to have an incredibly positive impact on how we view and consume and judge professional male sport well it sounds like it's going to be a fascinating forum i reckon um, this wednesday night um, it's free to head along uh, but you do need to book it's the 24th of october 6 p.m at federation squares edge theater and you can uh, get along and see dr bridie o'donnell um, head of the office of women in sport and recreation speaking uh, alongside a whole bunch of people on this topic and uh, let's see where it goes bridie it's uh, been a really fascinating conversation thanks for being on triple r 
Thank you so much for having me. And uh, women are a minority in tech fields, which is a concern to many. Seems it's these fields that are going to shape our futures in many ways and where much of the work will be in coming decades. Code Like a Girl is a social enterprise trying to change this. They're based in Melbourne and have a whole bunch of workshops and events coming up, including a roaming classroom, which is heading to the western suburbs next month. And to talk more about what they do and the challenges facing women in tech industries, Samantha Floriani, she's a Code Like a Girl's program director and she's here in the studio with me and thanks for coming in, Sam. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, when we talk about women in tech, we're often talking about it being a challenge, you know, barrier to entry, but it wasn't always like that. When you go right back to when um, computer programming began, there were women. Absolutely. And what we've seen is that there's actually been a decrease in participation from women in these fields more recently, which is a bit alarming. But things like if you, even if you look at um, movies like Hidden Figures and things like that, you can see that there have been women participating in um, maths and IT and computer science for a very long time. Um, but um, more recently, it's that's not so much the case, and it's down as low as 24% in Australia is the um, the number of women who are participating in in ICT in on average and I mean is this a global thing or we where do we rate do you know around the world is it similar numbers we're pretty similar I think in the US it's a little bit higher there at about 26 percent from memory but yeah it's it's pretty common across the board yeah and what I mean what are seen as the barriers because I know we hear a lot about STEM and school and and uh, women need to get engaged at that young age mm. is that is that what you see as well or is there other more systemic things? There's a fair few factors at play here. Um, one of them in particular is this idea of gender socialisation from a really young age. So um, it can start as, you know, as young as having, a, a, you know, toddlers and what we expose them to at that age. Um, and then it, it continues on all the way through school as teenagers, um, the subjects we're picking at school, and then what we study at university, and it just has that flow-on effect. Things like you can be um, as young as, say, three years old and have the types of toys that you're playing with, for example. We often give boys things like um, building blocks and puzzles and a lot of things that get their... Um, uh, logical and abstract thinking happening from an early age, whereas with girls we often give them soft things that they don't have to, um, you know, get that get that um, way of thinking going from a younger age. And so as early as that, we're kind of paving the way. And then, um, you know, as we get a bit older, we're exposed to all kinds of gendered messaging, which then start to have that flow-on effect into things that we think that we can and can't do based on our gender. And so that that's one particular factor. Then there's also um, the, the industry itself is um, currently, it's not exactly a friendly place for women to be. And so it, often um, we will write it off as, an, as, a, as a potential career path because it's just been something that has been associated with being, you know, like a, an IT bro or like a tech dude and things like that. Um, so there's a few different factors at, at play there. Yeah, and I mean, uh, and Code Like a Girl has been established to kind of intervene. Uh, what are the interventions that seem to be working? Do you think to to change change that change mm. change the math on that? Yeah, it's definitely as you mentioned before. Um, 
getting in early, getting in as early as you can to the young girls. So we do run several different um, programs and services that try to um, combat this this issue from in a number of different ways. And uh, so a lot of them are to do with getting the younger girls interested in tech. Um, and that is both educational, but also that, that sort of inspirational um, aspect as well, trying to demonstrate that this is an option for for girls to pursue often uh they will just have this assumption that oh no that's 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 a it's for boys that's a it's too hard or it's too um uh it just doesn't see there's this idea that it doesn't appeal to to girls but it does it's just been for such a long time framed in such a way that uh they don't think that it's something that they can do and so we want to present it to them and be like actually it's really fun it's really creative there's lots of different ways that you can use this technology and it's not just um you know it's not just limited to building websites or building apps there's lots of different ways that you can use the technology and so there's that there's the educational side but there's also that that sort of inspirational um awareness raising size. And, well. and what about the necessity I imagine I know um, a few years ago when that, that the famous one the Apple Health Kick I think app, yeah. which was you know you can monitor basically everything about your body and then it's like oh oops we forgot women's menstrual yeah. cycles and so that was quite well known as an indicator of when you don't have enough women collaborators you don't necessarily get technology that's going to suit women. Absolutely. And I, I wonder if uh, that would work on young women it's like you know what if you want stuff that you want, you, you need to build it yourself. Exactly. Well, this is this is a really big issue. When you think about technology, it's part of our everyday lives. It's part of our relationships. It's part of work. It's part of downtime. It's part of your meditation. It's part of everything, really. And so if we are using technology that's only been built by a specific demographic, generally very highly educated, privileged, white men um, in America in America yeah <laughs> then um, you know of course those those products are going to be designed for a particular type of user and so if we um, want tech to be truly for everyone there needs to be made by everyone there needs to be much more diversity at the table um, not just not just um, from a gender perspective either but obviously that's what we're focusing on but yeah absolutely more inclusion and diversity in tech is is so important for how we'll continue to engage with this technology uh, Samantha Floriani's speaking with us she's uh, from Code Like a Girl she's the program director over there and one thing that seems to afflict women more so than men although I'm sure a lot of men feel this is imposter syndrome it's a thing and and um, Code Like a Girl has a forum on it coming up. But it's actually, I, I saw that after a friend of mine who I was speaking to, I said, oh, you know, you're coming on today. And they're like, you've got to ask about imposter syndrome. <laughs> Women in my office talk about it. So it is quite a widespread feeling that that women are in jobs, probably doing a good job, feel like they shouldn't be there. Why is this? Well, again, there's a, there's a lot of factors at play here and it will be slightly different for everyone. But we have found in particular that in industries where you are a minority, so in this context, if you're a, a woman in um, com- some sort of computer science or IT field, being a minority sort of compounds that feeling of not being um, good enough, not feeling like you should be there, not feeling like you're as capable, questioning your achievements, um, 
And so it's really, really common for women in male-dominated fields to feel this. We did have, so last week in Canberra and Sydney, we had this imposter syndrome event, which went really well. And we had um, two really amazing speakers who have done really impressive things in their careers and are quite high up in their fields and, um, you know, manage a lot of people as well. And they still feel this imposter syndrome uh feeling so it, it it doesn't seem to matter how successful you are or how well you've done it's it's such a pervasive feeling that um you know it really affects a lot of us so we do we have another um one of these events in melbourne on tuesday this week and then we're doing it in adelaide at the end of the month so um it's really exciting to to have these events open to the community and to be able to share the experience and knowledge and and kind of um, team up together to be like this is a this is an experience that we all feel at some point. What can we do to try and combat this feeling? And so part of the event is is to sit down with the other attendees and work through this um, workshop on how to you know what practical skills, what practical tips can we can we implement in our everyday life so that um, when those imposter syndrome thoughts strike you can kind of put them to bed <laughs> or channel them for good because I or rather than than letting them undermine you I imagine in some ways it can be a positive to think I'm not doing doing very well I've got to work harder or whatever it, it you might certainly end up be a motivator yeah some goals but at the same time if it is going to undermine uh the the achievements that you've made or the work that you're doing not so good yeah absolutely we find that if it gets to the point where it's stopping you from pursuing opportunities or pursuing, um, you know, maybe it'll stop you for, from applying for a, a new job or something like that, or you might not um, put your hand up to do certain things at work or in your personal life, then, then that's where it becomes a problem. But, of course, like having a small, a small amount of, um, of, of, of doubt can can certainly push you to, to try a bit harder because I'm, I'm riddled I'm riddled with it <laughs> and I'm not in a tech field uh, but I I mean so we can go to your your, your girls program because yeah. you do have quite an extensive girls program and some of it includes game coding and you've got a, a space here in Melbourne I understand that people can head along with and participate but you've got a roaming classroom tell us about this is this a, a new thing or something you've been doing for a while so it's been um it's been in the works for a little while but it's only just started so it's called the roaming classroom for rebel girls and basically what we've got is we've got this really um amazing brightly colored pink trailer that we've filled with all of the things that we need to to basically pop up this classroom and so the idea is that we can literally roam around drive it around and be able to deliver coding workshops to um young women and girls in areas that aren't in metro melbourne um, and the reason behind that is because we really wanted to increase the accessibility. We have always had accessibility uh, at the heart of what we're trying to achieve. And so we do like to th- keep things low cost and quite central so, so that people can, can come along. But then we found as time went on that just because we're keeping it central doesn't mean that everyone was able to, to come along. So we thought, okay, we need to take this out beyond metro, the metro area and so, yeah, so we've got this roaming classroom all set up now and we're over the next six months travelling around the western suburbs. And so the idea is that we'll do uh, one weekend every month until March next year. Uh, and then who knows after that. And so what, 
what actual you know programming or coding do you do is there a particular program that you use and 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 start girls off or, or do you find that some girls already have some coding experience and they're wanting to develop them yeah we see girls come along at all different levels of experience some of them have never done it before at all and some of them have had a bit of a play around um we are seeing an increase in coding in the curriculum in schools so that so there are there is a little bit more happening now but it really is a range and so what we try to do is come at it from a a range of different ways we don't like to focus too specifically on one language in particular it's more about um exposing these girls to all the different to a range of different things that they can do and to come at it from a bit of a fun creative angle as well so it doesn't have to be stuffy, boring maths. It can be you can bring in um, that creative, that creativity of design, um, gaming elements, all kinds of things. So in this round, we've got um, three different workshops that we're focusing on with the girls, and the first one is about um, building your own game, and so that helps to encourage the girls to start thinking about um, you know the the logical thinking that goes beh- goes behind the gaming as well as the the creativity of you know, what do you want your character to do what do they like make that. so uh, <laughs> they come up with all sorts of things it's really it's really fascinating to see their the um creativity coming out and the the imagination that they use we also um, explore how you would make a website and so they come up with all, all kinds of ideas of the sorts of things that they would want to see on the internet, which is fascinating. And then the third one that we use um, is Python, which is a really um, versatile language. And so by exposing them to that and giving them a bit of a taste of the sorts of things that you can achieve with that language, they they, they leave feeling really inspired to keep going, which is really fantastic. Yeah, and you can get all the details on the Code Like a Girl website. But, I mean, before I let you go, Samantha, do you feel positive that the next generation will have a different experience to you uh, in in the workplace? I certainly hope so. I mean, something else that we're trying to achieve is is not just that educational side with the the girls and also um, the older women. We do run adult workshops as well, but it's also the the organisations and the companies that we work with. We really want to come at it from that angle in terms of sparking the cultural change in these in the tech industry as well. So. I certainly hope that it will shift. I know my experience in it has been um, not nearly as fun and as exciting as these girls, so I do hope that, that they have a better experience in the future. Well, that's something. <laughs> <laughs> Good on you. Um, Code Like a Girl, social enterprise. Uh, come into a town near you. Uh, they've got a roaming classroom and you can head to their website, codelikeagirl.org, to find out everything that you need to. And Samantha Floriani is the program's director over there. And thanks so much for coming into Triple R. Thank you so much to have you. And last month, Melbourne recorded a resident population of 5 million and it's still growing, which has prompted a lot of discussion around how we can keep the city functional with millions more people. One idea is to have a bunch of mini CBDs around the greater Melbourne area, an idea that Associate Professor Dave Nichols is interested in. He's a senior lecturer in urban planning at University of Melbourne, comes by monthly to Triple R and... Uh, you're interested in it? I don't know. What yeah, I'm interested in it. Hi, Kalia. Hi. Hi, <laughs> yes. good morning. <laughs> good morning. How are you this morning? Yeah, pretty good. Uh, good to see you panelling. Uh, yeah, I know. It's like it's riding a, a bike. It's a side of you that I... Yeah. Um, yeah, look, I think it is actually a really interesting idea. And you've seen it. It's coming through so many iterations, uh, even just, you know, within 
shall we say, living memory. In the last 10 years, there's been the idea of activity centres, those, uh, those hubs, and, now, and um, the, the notion of um, like precincts, uh, and now it's being described by some as, as this notion of a, um, a CBDs. So what we're thinking about at the moment, uh, what's being sort of left front and centre about the, um, the, uh, the kind of the, the current thinking is uh, the notion, for instance, of that uh, education kind of precinct idea in Werribee, which is being put forward as kind of... Yeah, some, some are describing it as like another CBD. But it's a, like almost anything. I'm sorry, I always seem to come on the show and say this kind of thing, but it's like, oh, this idea is as old as the hills, Kalia. This is, there's nothing new. There's nothing new. What yeah, makes you think there's something is it, new? Is it central if it's... I mean, I suppose multiple central business districts makes sense, does it? I mean, I always think of it like central business district. It's, it's the one in the centre. You got it. Um, yeah, I think that... Uh, well, of course it makes sense. And, and so it's the, the non-central business districts. You, you see, about. in the States, more than here, although a little bit... Think about... Okay, think about uh, Sydney has Newcastle to the north and Wollongong to the south. And the whole thing is like one big conurbation of God knows how many people, like 7 million. I don't know how many people live in all those those places combined. Uh, but in, in one sense, you could say, look, that's one massive city. And you see the same, think of uh, the Bay Area in, um, you know, which San Francisco is kind of the main city, but then you've got Berkeley and Oakland and others that are kind of, you know, uh, cities close by each other. Now, that's a different thing because they've they've... Uh, grown together, so to speak, and they've grown so big that they've just kind of merged. More, yeah, yeah, merged. Yeah. And I suppose we, I mean, I've heard it spoken about before that Geelong and even, you know, Warrnambool, Bendigo, Ballarat, um, Aubrey Wodonga, I mean, Sale, we've got these right. sort of potential cities all around we Melbourne do. and people should move there. But they now that, that we've got this other idea that we've got Werribee, Monash, uh, I'm trying to remember them all, um, Parkville, Sunshine, yeah. that we'd have little mini CBDs yeah, yeah. instead. I mean, the Parkville one is... Um, I had a student uh, um, a few years ago who's done uh, some work on the Parkville one with the question, like, is this just kind of expediency, labelling Parkville as an education and medical precinct because it's so close to the actual CBD that to call it, to, to talk about it in that sense is kind of nonsensical. It, that, that place exists historically... Uh, as the hospital and university centre because it was right next to the CBD, you know, since the 1850s. So um, that's, a, that's an oddity. But that's where the labelling starts to get to get weird, to kind of promote things in this way. But what they can do when they've got um, those kinds of precincts, and one of them is Parkville, they say, well, look, the Parkville one's doing really well. Yeah, well, it has been doing really well for almost 200 years now. So, you know, let's, <laughs> let's not... We'll take let's credit not anyone for that one. currently living take responsibility <laughs> for that. Um <laughs> The Monash one is, is, you know, similarly, you know, Monash uh, University is kind of, you know, similarly. I think the, the Werribee idea is really is a really interesting one and promoting Werribee as, a, as an education precinct and promoting it as this kind of the second CBD idea is actually uh, really interesting. You can see Wyndham Council, the, the city of Wyndham, where Werribee is located, uh, they are, they're very excited by this notion and that someone, someone clever has uh, spent some time generating some very, uh, what we used to say, uh, jazzy kind of um, images of, of what it might look like. So you sort of expect people to be around there in hoverboards, but it, you know, it looks kind of it does look kind of cool um sort of cool 
Docklands Colony on Mars kind of cool. Um, so it's um, it, it's a nifty idea, I think, to like draw some of that. Sorry to interrupt you, but just just to get I was back interrupting to the, you. Sorry. Oh, oh yeah. were you okay? Um, um, then you're sorry. So um, just to get back to the the central premise, like to draw. Uh, people away from the f- from relying on the CBD. Obviously, it takes that population pressure away from the centre of the city. Um, it takes a lot of pressure off transport, and um, just the notion of like getting not just um, you know um, manufacturing or um, you know those kinds of jobs uh, out on the periphery or uh, what what other kinds of like blue collar jobs out on the periphery um getting some white collar jobs out out to for instance just dandenong dandenong is a great example of something that i think is uh kind of working it it's sort of there's been a lot of investment in making dandenong into a second cbd uh so to speak and um, and I think that in some ways that is kind of working. If you've been to Dandenong lately, have you been to Dandenong? I have actually, yeah. um, because there's there's a whole lot of uh, uh, Af- Afghan inspired restaurants there that I like. Yeah, yes. So I try and drop through. Yep. Yes. So it has and it has those kinds of it has its little India. It has those kinds of things, um, and it has, uh, as I say, a lot of a lot of planning focus has been put on Dandenong in the last ten or fifteen years. I think beginning with the the, the Braxton Brumby governments. Uh, and and so it's 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 sort of you know it's sort of working. There's office buildings and and so on, and it, it looks kind of, I mean, it sort of looks half finished at the moment. But it's um, you know that's better than never started, and and I think it's I think it's going places. Yeah, and I mean, when, before we talk more about um, Dandenong, if you want to, uh, I wanted to ask about Werribee because when I go, go to Werribee, and I actually went past Werribee uh, on the way to visit family down past Geelong on the weekend, and I was looking up into the sky as I was uh, driving through on the freeway, and the birds are incredible. There's just these raptors and uh, pelican flocks and all that sort of thing in yeah. that area because yeah. of the the trees and the sort of open you know wetlands and so forth that the birds come for come and because of the sewage farm well yeah because of and it's incredible Mm. bird watching area so there's that uh but then say goodbye to those i didn't feel excited when i saw that the the i think it's the mayor of Wyndham saying see those paddocks over there they're going to be high-rise buildings because it's it's our food bowl too Mm -hmm. so does it invite this uh, challenge that we're going to be pushing our food and other things even further out because it's all going to be CBD and housing. Yes, but but we that that's just what's going to happen. Like we we need to understand that people um, people need to. Are be you there. are you trying to get me to say we're screwed? No, I'm not. <laughs> but I just wonder. I mean, whether we whether that debate is still being had or whether we're saying look houses on top of really rich farming land. That's just what we do now. Well, look, isn't it? I mean, you know. I want to say open a newspaper, but I know nobody does that. Um, but let's just for you know, just to be um, quaint, open a newspaper, and you'll see every, any, on any given day, like that's that's this. It's it's an ongoing debate in this country and around the world, obviously. But in this country, like it's it is population growth, and it's also not just population growth, but demographics. You know, people coming to the cities. Um, bizarrely. Uh, everybody wants to live in Australia, and and if you come and live in Australia, you want to live in a city. Look at the um, the, the Liberals were floating an idea uh, last week or the week before about uh, if people come to like migrants to Australia are going to be forced to live outside the cities for a period of time, which is you know I mean that's it has almost has an apartheid feel to it. It's that I 
cannot imagine how that could possibly be made to work. But that's just extraordinary. But what we do have in this in this country, which is is you know we're an unusual country in so many ways, but we have a um, a strong national party I and mean, they're stronger than they ought to be but they're a coalition partner so they have uh, and you know they have a lot of sway in the, the present federal government for instance and they're very interested logically in what goes on in the regions and one of the things that they are very keen to do and have been for like forever is drawing a population of the regions they're always like tearing their hair out about how people want to live in the cities uh, and not out in the bush and um, we could, you know, that's, an, that's another topic about why that is so. But uh, certainly there are, you know, bright sparks in the, in the National Party who come up with notions about how people can either be persuaded or forced to... I remember Barnaby Joyce's thing about, like, you know, sending a government department to, uh, to Armidale um, and, you know, hilariously everyone in that government department resigned rather than going to live in Armidale. Uh, uh, by the way, Armidale in New South Wales, not Armidale... Um, you know, in the south side of in the southern Melbourne suburb, but um, yeah. So there's so there's that that kind of aspect to it. Is it's it's one of those. Th- it's a demographic trend that has to be dealt with in some way. I've I mean I I never miss the opportunity to have my not my boring little um, uh, monologue about how what we need to do is consciously construct new cities and you know do it right and all of you know i'm an idealist it's the one area in which i'm an, an idealist if not an ideologue um you know it's kind of utopian notion but it's when it when it's done right it it works well and the obvious example is canberra which is you know a massively uh expensive thing to do but you know the alternatives are exactly the kind of thing that you're talking about unmanageably large cities so we either you know limiting immigration I love the way that you're just letting me go with this. This is great. Well, Thank I was going to say it's at um, half past nine and um, Associate <laughs> Professor uh, Dave Nichols is changing the conversation oh, from I? multiple CBDs. Oh, well, I, talking about that? Do it, multiple CBDs is a way of dealing with an unmanageably large city. Well, well it is. another way of dealing with it is to... Well, multiple CBDs is like having another another place somewhere else rather than just let just, you know, tinker with... For instance, Melbourne, which is, you know, and everybody says five million is the magic number when Melbourne starts to get, you know, it starts to be impossible to have it. What's the, what's the, the, the phrase is like a, you know, a fried egg or something, you know, with the, the yolk is the centre. And, and then the white, and we've reached the edge of the white. We've reached the edge of the white, yes. Yeah, I wonder with regards to population, and now I'm sort of going off a little bit, I suppose, but I mean, what does it, does it worry you? It seems to worry a lot of people that because I always thought with population and yes, people need to get around and that sort of thing, but essentially it comes down to what those people do and consumption and so forth. So if if you've got a sort of greedy lot of five million people, then or versus people that are much more sparing, don't travel as much, um, live closer to where they work, that sort of thing. Or do you think population really how can is? You make people do. That? How can you? Make I'm not going to make them do you're anything. Going against human nature there, though. I mean, it's. I, I don't know. Well, it depends on who are, they are, are doesn't it? Oh, depends do on who they are. So they should do a kind of character test. <laughs> I'm not testing to anybody. Live in, live in I'm Melbourne. just saying that population on its own isn't the only measure. Oh no, that's oh that's totally true. So uh, you're correct, and and in fact, you know, I mean, I know I was being flippant, but of course there are so many examples of ways that you can change behaviour, um, and it's in funnily enough, it's much easier than than it appears. Um, 
I, I would love the the example of um, making people wear seatbelts in the 60s, which was seen, considered to be the most impossible, absolutely impossible, particularly since there was an anti-seatbelt brigade that said, who wants to be stuck in your car if you're in an accident, you know, you'll just die there. Um, so, you know, there's, there's, of course there's ways to make people change their behaviour, but that's, that is also another tangent. But, you know... Yeah. Do, you to, do you want to just... We could just be tangential all morning if you we want. We could. Um, and, I mean, one thing... We do have an election coming up. I don't want mm. to go to politics this morning, but we are hearing from the would-be premiers, um, the current and, and the one that wants to be. Uh, we've got a lot of promises, particularly around you know, regional rail and, and big transport projects, and we've seen that one, that rail that might go all the way from, from Sunshine, where mm. it'll be all the way around um, through Monash. And... So do you see there's a lot of validity in the in in these kinds of big projects in regional rail and the like? I can see validity in the sense that I can see the appeal and I think that people do need to be moved around but there's or, or to be able to move around. But there is that other that other thing which is an oddity which I think Melbourne is grappling with and it and it speaks to the C B D idea as well. Um, that it's it's actually uh, it's getting more and more difficult to get places. It's difficult for me to get into Triple R at 9.15 in the, the morning first, on time. I know. It's the first time you've been on time for a really long time. <laughs> I know, because <laughs> I left me. so much earlier than usual. Um, so it's... And people are starting to go, look, actually, I can't do that. You know, there's, it's it's impossible to make that journey. And, you know, I think probably many of the listeners ha- appreciate that, um, you know, in the last 10 years or so, um, it's become much, much more difficult to get around in Melbourne. I mean, you know, so you can say, well, transport public transport has to keep up with that and there's also people who say well the roads have to be built to keep up with that um but then there's another uh question which i think is worth asking was is 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 transport you know rapid transport uh a a human right necessarily do you know it's like um maybe people should be a little more uh, think a little more about whether they need to make that journey you know those kinds of things particularly in the in the in the present day when, when other communications are so um, so much more efficient. I mean, I don't know, I'm throwing that out there. I, I personally think everybody has the right to go wherever they want, whenever they want. But, I'd, but I think that, you know, kind of circumstances are making it somewhat impossible in this city, which is growing uh, exponentially, you know, as we sit here, uh, Melbourne is growing. And so just, fi- just finally, mm. who has the power to create these CBDs? Is it a government thing? The Victorian Planning Authority is the one that sort of put the, yes. the idea out there as a formal one. Are they the ones that can make it happen? Yes, they, and they, they should. I mean, it has to be, you know, it's, it's, this is one of the problems that we have. Like state government... Um, you know, and we come up to elections every every four years, and the political parties throw out these these great, you know, tempting ideas, uh, which are probably made up, you know, scratched out on the back of an envelope, you know, uh, over breakfast, and then they just uh, they know they listen to you and take notes. That's what goes down. I wish, I wish they did. <laughs> I so wish that they listened to me. Uh, so, so there are the, those kinds of, you know, that's 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 part of how things work here. Um, but yes, I think uh, a strong planning authority. That's what we, which is what we really like. A strong planning authority with um, capacity uh, would actually be able to make those sorts of things happen. The Dandenong thing is a good example where where something is actually uh, taking taking place. And you know these things, you know, the, these things are, are happening in a way. The Werribee thing, it it looks 
you know, it looks overly sci-fi to me in one sense, the way it's being promoted right now. But but the, the core notion is, I think, actually a good idea. I mean, not, you know, sorry to all the birds listening. I, I know it's not, from your point of view, it's not necessarily. But if the city is going to expand, then it needs to expand in ways that are kind of, you know, properly, properly planned, where people are accommodated and where, you know, uh, jobs are, are placed and, and so on. There's a, you know, um, it it's really fascinating to look at the way that um you know industry by the way is is massively resistant to being uh told to go particular places but this idea of like putting the putting the industry and the pe- the industries and their workers in the, roughly the same location a fabulous idea really hard to get right and but it needs it needs an overarching body to coordinate that kind of thing it's you know it's it's a basic um uh, necessity if the city is going to run efficiently which it presently doesn't. No. Well, hopefully you can get to your next destination. Thanks for coming in. We'll catch you again in a month. And um, Dylan will be here when you come uh, back. I remember Dylan. Yeah. Um, he's been away for weeks. Uh, thank you. And uh, Thanks. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.